welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Comaro. I very rarely do any sort of game previews or opponent previews, really until the ACC and NCAA tournament. But considering season openers are more roster breakdowns rather than actual previews, unless both teams are experienced, I hit up CJ Moore to chat about Duke, Kansas, and then Brent Wilkerson knew for UNC talk, because if there is one team I figure Duke fans are interested in no matter what, and despite the fact that their first matchup of the year isn't for three months, it is UNC. So I chatted with CJ for 20 minutes on various topics, such as the uh, the 2018 Elite Eight game that still makes me angrier than any Duke game in my lifetime, uh, Snoop Dogg's Night at the Fog, and why Kansas, similar to Duke, doesn't play secret scrimmages. So if you want to go straight to the current team and game-related topics, uh, with the with the uh, Champions Classic game headed uh, coming very soon. Um, it'll be tomorrow if you're listening on uh, Monday night, and if you're listening Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, we're that is game day. But uh, the whole conversation is very worth it in my opinion. I consider him one of the best beat reporters in the biz. He has a lot a lot of great info. With Brent, we got straight to the nitty gritty of what the current team. Uh, looks like looked like in its final scrimmage against Winston-Salem State, a roster breakdown, and really expectations headed into this season, led by Cole Anthony. Spoiler, Roy's already pretty dadgum angry at the heels. So, enjoy my uh, Kansas and UNC conversations with C.J. Moore and Brent Wilkerson New. Alright, I am now joined by C.J. Moore from The Athletic. He covers the Big 12, kind of centered on Kansas, but all the Big 12, plus teams in the the midwest the big teams like missouri and wichita state we're just gonna really break down what we can hope expect kind of have our fingers crossed for we're just going to talk about it all today in terms of what we might see in the uh tuesday champions classic game between duke and kansas at madison square garden so again thanks for joining me and uh yeah did i get is there any other teams you cover no i think you you hit them all pretty much Okay, so first of all, as I was telling CJ before we started, I uh, just kind of, to really give myself a reminder, although it's painful, the 2018 game between uh, Duke and Kansas in the NCAA tournament, the Elite Eight, came down to the wire. I actually Mm -hmm. listened to the podcast I did after that, and I'm pretty even keel. I mean, obviously I want Duke to win all the time, but like I just break things down as is, and that's probably... The most angry I've ever heard myself after any game or any season just because of how it went down. So before I go on, I'm interested in your perspective. How do you recall or what do you remember specifically about that Duke-Kansas Elite Eight matchup? Uh, you know, it was a great game. Um, the, the first thing that comes to mind is probably Svi Mikhailuk butt-fronting um, Marvin Bagley and, <laughs> and kind of containing him um that was a matchup that was probably pretty advantageous you would think for duke and um i don't remember bagley's final stat line but i you know it was decent but not um he you know he didn't kill them and um so i think that was that was really key to that game um you know malik newman was on just a ridiculous run during that tournament and uh you know i know he was good um, I remember Svee hit a shot pretty late 
um, that I think was on, you know, maybe a little bit of a breakdown defensively for Duke that was huge. And, uh, and then obviously, I'm sure we all remember the Grayson Allen um, shot, which I thought Malik Newman defended pretty well. Um, he was never a great defender, but he actually like started to guard a little bit late in that year, which was, was big for Kansas. And um, it was just a, a really, really good college basketball game. Um, and Bill Self was very, very, very pleased to have to have won that one. I think it's one of the more emotional um, time, you know, more than one of the more times he's been really emotional after a game for that team to get to a Final Four um, was was pretty big for him. Yeah, I think he's actually had K's number. He may have uh, beaten K in like the last three matchups. I'm not sure. I don't have that written down exactly. But I mean, it, it was interesting because both teams in a 45 minute game, counting the overtime. Both teams pretty much had four players play damn near all of it. Um, I mean, Kansas, it was uh, Graham, Newman, Svee, and Vic. They played all but eight minutes, which went to Garrett, who we're going to be seeing probably the most experienced uh, Kansas player that we'll be seeing on Tuesday. And uh, Duke with uh, Grayson, DeVal, Bagley, and Gary Trent, they played all but four minutes. So it pretty much came down to how would – the bench do for the base because Azabuki had foul trouble and DeSousa came in played really really well and then when Wendell Carter I'm sure many remember the uh, block charge kind of could have gone either way although I'm sure there's bias on both sides for what you personally think but um yeah I think that that was big and uh Kay kind of split it up between Javin Delorier and Marcus Bolden and which is uh, was kind of controversial, at least to me, because uh, Delorier at that point, he just wasn't ready to play the responsibilities. But overall, I just think my reasoning after that game for why I was a little bit upset, or pretty a lot, um, is because Duke really played great zone defense throughout the season. The 2-3, the reason K wanted to really install it and keep it that way is because it simplified everything. I mean, that was, he was Grayson and four freshmen, and especially with bigs and the pick and roll coverage. I know you're a bit concerned about Kansas's pick and roll coverage with two bigs uh, this season. So it just made things a little bit easier playing zone. And then all of a sudden with Syracuse, and then it jumped up to a whole other level. K started doing these crazy different zones i mean instead of the it was a two three and then you would extend the wings but then um especially against kansas there was a lot of three twos there was a one three one i mean there was all kinds of crazy stuff so guys just didn't know the responsibilities and two out of duke's worst games allowing uh, the other team offensive rebounds or two out of their three worst defensive rebounding games were their last two games of the season and kansas a team that they basically had four guys who can shoot, and then they would have the big inside. It just allowed them, I don't want to say easy looks, but a lot easier than Duke had been giving up in, in the zone. Duke had been fantastic against the three. So I think it was just really odd the uh, how that got switched up all of a sudden. It's like, why not play to your strength? And just, just the fact that Duke was peaking on offense at that point in time until the Q's game. And then Kay kind of put it back in Grayson's hands, initiating running the offense, not in Trevon DeVal's hands. And even when Trevon DeVal really carried Duke in the first half versus Kansas, second half went back to Grayson. And it's just, it was tougher to get the ball inside. Plus, they just didn't run enough action for Bagley and Carter. There's ways to get guys the ball, and they just couldn't even get them the ball. So uh, 
that's why I was frustrated, just because it's not that they lost. Kansas played a great game, but Duke shouldn't have even been close. Kansas missed a ton of wide-open shots. They had many chances each time, ton of offensive rebounds, and it was just odd. So my biggest takeaway from that or question for you is it's been interesting because I know in football, I think uh, Deshaun Watson, it, it kind of was an interesting story when he gave a detailed explanation of a play to a reporter about a month or two ago, and everyone, or not everyone, but there was kind of a narrative where he put the reporter in the reporter's place. And last year, Kevin Durant in the playoffs, I think it was against the Clippers, he gave a pretty basic explanation of the type of defense the Clippers were playing against him. But still, everyone acted like he broke the game down. It was so amazing. So what I'm what I'm wondering is, what like, I, I'm not sure why we don't, or not we, because I don't really have control. Do you think reporters in college should ask more detailed questions um, from the coaches, from the staff? Or is it just kind of, I don't know if fans even want to know kind of the, the nitty-gritty of what goes on. But either way, just the fact that Coach K, he'll never really have to answer for the strategy that what went on in Kansas and how much of an outlier the types of strategy he used was. So I guess that's a long-winded way of asking, like, should guys be held accountable, especially coaches? Should players be asked about that? Or is it kind of college kind of more for, I don't want to say cliches, but a little more, more basic? Uh, I think there's a right way of, of asking those questions, um, you know, that maybe doesn't – sometimes a coach is going to be offended if you ask about it. But I think if you phrase it in the right way um, – you know, in that instance saying, hey, Coach K, um, you know, and I wasn't in that press conference. I was at that game, but I was obviously after Kansas won, I was focused on the Kansas side and in the Kansas locker room. Um, and a lot of times I won't go to those press conferences afterwards because the best stuff you can get is in the locker room, especially in the NCAA tournament setting. But I think, you know, if you're a guy that covers Duke all year and and you see that, hey, you know, you were you were running one kind of zone for most of the season, then you switched up with this game. I think to ask that simple question of, hey, why did you switch to a 1-3-1 one, one, or whatever different zones they ran that day, um, as opposed to what you've been running earlier in the year, I think to ask that question is is, is fair game, and there's a, um, there's a way of asking it without – um, coming off as an asshole, right? And and I, I like that you talk about the um, the Watson deal. Like I think the reporter did a really good job because he got him to open up about it. Um, and you know, when it, even sometimes a simple question, um, you know, if you phrase it the right way, can can get a gr- great answer. So um, yeah, I mean, I I am one that that likes to talk about the basketball sides of it and the, the X's and O's and and get behind. Um, why someone did this and, and you know I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm the type that'll ask those kinds of questions if you know if I if I feel like I know what I'm talking about so I think one thing you get is um, you know I think there's some reporters that, that really know basketball and there's some that that know it fairly well but from an X's and O standpoint don't quite understand it but that's not to say they can't do a good job covering the games um, you know they might be really really good at, at, at hitting on um you know some other aspects whether it's the 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 narratives of the seasons and the um you know the emotional standpoint of it and and that kind of stuff but um you know i I know i'm one that that likes to to kind of 
um, understand the basketball part of it, and I probably approach the game a little bit different way than than some other writers. Yeah, and I just think, um, as you said, there there should be a happy medium, and I think there might be a little too much uh, concentration on the uh, kind of the deep dive narrative stories rather rather than um, what you do, which I totally respect, which is you do that really well. Just kind of you're a great writer in terms of those features. They really you get to know the personal stuff about the players and how how it uh, like the off court stuff. But then also, I mean, if you're watching the games, I would assume not not you specifically, but I assume we want to know what's really happening more than just a basic win lose scenario. So I think you do a great job with that. I actually think Kansas with you and uh, if I'm pronouncing this right, Jesse Newell, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you guys are just incredible in the way you do what you do. I mean, I know you're not a team, but uh, both of you are just really extraordinary. And I think uh, many teams would love to have even just one, uh, one beat reporter like you and they have two. So Kansas fans um, should be really, you, they should be really happy and they should understand what they have with you two guys. Um, all right. So let's move on to uh, obviously the biggest uh, story of, uh, the preseason, which was uh, Kansas late night in the fog with Snoop Dogg. <laughs> so, um, obviously, I don't want to spend much time at all about this. I do want to push back just a tiny bit because I did read your story. And for those who don't know, Snoop performed and there was a there was a exotic dancer polls and there was, a, uh, I guess, a unfamily oh, friendly oh, words. Stripper polls. They were they were stripper polls. OK, yeah, <laughs> um, they, they were they were that. And it's. I mean, it was just funny because, uh, I mean, as you pointed out, I mean, it's supposed to be a family-friendly atmosphere and self-set. I thought there was going to be, like, edited stuff or, or whatever. I mean, here's my pushback. Snoop Dogg, and I say this, I, I'm a fan. I, I, I like who, I like everything he stands for, but he's, like, the biggest sellout, and I, and I mean that as a compliment ever. He can go into any situation, whether it's Sesame Street or anything, and he'll be fine. Because, like blend, with, yeah. with kids, so yeah. what, what what people said, or I guess instead of just using the generic term people, what you, what you wrote is that they should have known kind of what they were getting into with Snoop Dogg. I don't know. I mean, it almost seemed like a, a big F you from Kansas to the NCAA. I mean, obviously that's more of an extreme than what it might have been. But with Kansas, with the whole all the stuff going on with the NCAA, it was just very interesting how all that uh, went down. So I don't know. If it was a matter of, oh, that's just Snoop, because if Snoop wanted to do family friendly, Snoop can do family friendly. That's my only pushback there. Yeah, I think that once um, Kansas officials saw the stripper pools coming out <laughs> and uh, I think they should have got an idea of what was coming. And, um, you know, at that point, even though it's late in the game, you can still push back and be like, hey, uh, what, what's going on here? And, and, and <laughs> there, you know. There might have been some kind of rehearsal, so you might have had a little bit of a hint there. Um, but that that was my whole thing that I, I just thought, um, you know, I was entertained. It was it was funny. <laughs> but um, at the same time, like they needed to go really, really safe considering what they're they're up against. And are you, are you Dog, saying the NCAA doesn't have a sense of humor? Yes, I'm I'm. <laughs> definitely saying that i'm definitely saying that so um that was that was my whole point of the, the column that night is hey you, you probably should have gone safe you didn't and i know for a fact that the bill self was was pretty displeased with with how it all went down 
and um, you know, pretty much em- embarrassed. I think might be the the, the right word um, about how how it went. I, it was it was definitely not his intent or the basketball program's intent to throw up the middle fingers at the NCA, even if it looked like that. And um, you know, I actually believe that 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 he that that wasn't their their intent. Which you know, I think some people that's the narrative that, that has been thrown out there that people think that was. Um, I'm here to tell you it it, it wasn't. But I can understand why you would why you would think that. Yeah, and even if I thought it was, I wouldn't think Bill Self would be in any way involved in that. Um, it would be up to other people. But yeah, I believe what mm-hmm. Bill Self says. All right. Um. So uh, I guess one more quick topic before we move on to uh, the current rosters, and this is just something interesting to me, especially since Kansas is involved as well. There's and it's not a huge deal. It's not something that you could say, oh, it'll definitely have a huge effect on the season or really any effect. I mean, you don't really know, but especially with like Duke, a team that really doesn't have experience and it's, I don't know. I just thought they, it could have been useful for Duke. Basically there's um, out of 353 teams in the NCAA division one, there's only 34 that didn't participate in a preseason quote unquote secret scrimmage Mm -hmm. um, this year. Um, There's uh, four teams in the ACC, three from the SWAC, two from 10 different conferences, one from seven there's, and, uh, 15 of them they did in 2018. So 15 teams didn't this year, but did in 2018. And there's only 18, uh, teams that didn't scrimmage this year or last year. And among the biggest, uh, names, there's Duke, FSU, Syracuse, Butler, Kentucky, Arkansas, Memphis, and then of course, Kansas. So it's interesting that those teams have chosen not to. I mean, you have like North Carolina, they've played Villanova the past couple of years, uh, Michigan State, they played Gonzaga. I, I don't know. I think it could help because then you're playing one more, um, uh, I guess, exhibition against whoever. But uh, I, I think even if it's not in front of a crowd, I do think they can help. Why do you feel – have you asked Bill Self or have you gotten really any sort of feeling why Kansas has chosen not to the past couple of years? Kansas never does. It's it's simple economics. I mean, they can fill the arena for those um, exhibition games. And when you're an athletic department that your football program is not always the biggest money maker and, and basketball is a money maker, um, you just don't pass up those home dates. So – um, I'm guessing if you ask Kentucky, if you ask Duke, it's, it's the same reasons. Like they, they just don't want to pass up those home dates. Um, if the coaches had their choice and they could play another team and get that scrimmage in, they probably would, especially considering how Duke and Kansas opened the season in the champions classic. Um, I think they'd like to, to, to face some better competition right before that. Um, you know, in the case of Duke, they actually got a, a decent game because they do bring in the D2 national champion. Um, you know, I actually watched that yesterday, um, the Northwest Missouri state game. And like, that's, that's probably a, like would be a okay mid-major team in, in college basketball that they got to face. So I think they maybe got a little bit of a head start in facing somebody that can kind of give them a little bit of competition, but um, yeah, it's just simple economics. Yeah, I mean, I think that team could actually win a couple games in the ACC this year. It's no disrespect to them, um, Northwest Missouri State. It's more along the lines of with Duke's roster. I mean, basically Duke had the matchups really dictated. Duke play in a way that they're not going to be playing much 
if at all, unless versus total outlier matchups this season. So while, yeah, it was good competition, I mean, they went from playing an undersized spread them out uh, where uh, Duke couldn't help on defense, and it was just, and a very experienced team. I mean, I mean, they're going to be playing Kansas, who might, as it seems, or possibly Kansas is going two bigs at a time. So the experience Duke got, well, I guess, yes, from a competitive standpoint, it does help. But I'm not sure why they couldn't have played Northwest Missouri State the second game and scheduled a scrimmage against a uh, high-level D1 team the first game. And then, um, I mean, who did they play? Like Fort Valley State second game? They were 7-22 and 22 in Division Two, So, mm-hmm. yeah, Duke won by 1,000. But I'm not sure. I don't think that helped much. But I think you, you did make a great point in terms of Duke, Kansas, and Kentucky. Kentucky, I think they've gotten better. And, yeah, Duke's reputation – um, with Cutcliffe has gotten better, and even Kansas, I think they have a new coach. I don't follow football less, that close. Less miles, yeah. Yeah, less miles. They're they're getting better, but still, it's not near the uh, money generator that basketball is. So, while you could say those teams, they they should they already make enough. Wouldn't better preparation be more important? But I, I do understand the basic kind of yeah, try to make money for your school. Yeah, that's that's what it is, 100%. So I know from the Kansas standpoint, that's that's what it is. I mean, um, I can't remember a time. I don't think that, that Kansas has ever done a secret scrimmage. They always they always play the in in state Kansas D2 schools um, every single year. A couple of years ago, they did get the um, to do the the scrimmage against Miss Missouri for the charity thing, but that was in addition to the two exhibition games. So. Um, you won't see Kansas changing that up at, at all. Yeah, it's just interesting to me because uh, – and the stats I got in terms of the teams playing and all that was uh, Jeff Goodman, he puts them up on secret <laughs> scrimmages for he did this year and last year. So it's just because it's not just a lot of teams. It's not even most teams. It's the mass majority of teams are mm-hmm. actually doing it. So uh, it was just interesting to me. All right, so uh, let's move on to this season. And I'm not going to – ask that kind of cliche thing of, uh, do you think it actually is better now they don't have the monkey on their back of uh, 14 straight Big 12 titles or anything like that? I don't think that was any added pressure. Or if it was, I don't think they were thinking about it during the game. So I think it's just a new season. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Kansas fans would love to have had that continue going last season after 14 straight uh, regular season titles. But new team, and uh, yeah, it should be interesting. So... In terms of uh, what Kansas is ex- – well, I, w- I will say, I mean, l- last year, I think the biggest uh, things were um, – I mean, Auburn, they kind of just got blown away right away on the court, and they couldn't – they turned it over too much and couldn't turn Auburn over. And just not having Azubuki re- really uh, hurt. So this year it's going to be different. They have Azubuki back, and they have – um, DeSousa, he DeSousa. has, yeah. DeSousa, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, he's no been ruled eligible as well. It's kind of funny. I think, um, his last game was, uh, was Duke. against, uh, yeah, well, it wasn't against Duke, but uh, it was the game oh, yeah, before yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's, he's, yeah. he's used to seeing the, uh, Villanova the Duke jerseys. Last one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of general expectations in terms of how Kansas will play, how the roster will fill out. We can go down each uh, one by one in different factors, but what starting out, what are your overall thoughts on this Kansas team as we head into uh, the season? 
Um, you know, it's it's going to be interesting because because as you hit on, they they're going to play with a too big approach. Um, at least start games that way. And um, you know, I I wrote about this yesterday that that Bill Self played that way for so long that I think there's almost this narrative that people think he prefers to play that way. And it's actually changed because of how basketball's changed and then also the success he's had with guys like Josh Jackson and Svi Mikhailuke at the four. Um, it's just so much easier to run offense when you got shooting like that. Um, I think he would have loved to have landed Matthew Hurt and to be playing Matthew Hurt at the four this year, um, a guy who's who's got skill and then you know the size to, to play up front as well, but could almost has kind of guard skills to, to where you're, you're not playing small, but in a way you're, you're playing skill ball. Right. And um, that, that, so that's one area that I'm going to be really focused on early on in the season for Kansas, how teams guard them because David McCormick and Silvio DeSouza, who will be playing, you know, most of the minutes at the four when they go big, um, neither of those guys are, you know, able to shoot the three McCormick's a decent mid range shooter. Um, but you know, his, his range goes out to about maybe 17 feet. Um, so you'll, you, you know, I think there are teams that are just going to ignore those guys on the perimeter and, um, it's difficult to run offense when, when, you know, you've just ba- basically one guy's not being guarded. Um, but as far as Kansas's perimeter group, I think, uh, actually feeling better about those guys than I, than I probably did even a month ago. Um, you know, everybody, a lot of people should know probably De- Devon Dotson after the freshman season he had, um, super, super fast, um, you know, really, really good college point guard just because of his athletic attributes and, and, and how quick he is. But, um, both Marcus Garrett and, and Ochai Baji have basically changed their technique on their jump shots and both look really a lot better. And I know they're just exhibition games, but both shot it pretty well in the exhibition. Uh, McBaji last night hit his first five threes and ended up five of six from three, I believe. And um, he, you know, he was like a a left-eyed shooter, and now he's he's bringing it, um, you know, keeping his keeping his elbow in and, and going off more off his right eye. His shot looks a lot better. And Garrett's shot, um, you know, was was really 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 ugly last year, and teams just did not guard him. Um, and I think he, by the looks of it, teams are at least going to have to respect his jumper. So that, so I think their the perimeter group's pretty good. And, and um, you know, kind of looking ahead to this game, I think kind of who shoots the three, as simple as it is, will will be you know who shoots it better will be a huge huge factor. Um, just because I think you know Duke's got some guys as well, and, and Trey Jones that that maybe you, you you leave open a little bit or, or you, you don't close hard on um, because of what he can do off the dribble, and um, you know whose guards maybe shoot it better will will be a, a big key in this game. Yeah, I mean the Dotson Trey Jones matchup that'll be uh, really fun as we uh, kind of kind of coming right out of the gate for the college mm-hmm. basketball season. I'll, I'll admit one thing: um, it's funny because I, I scoffed a little bit um, at what you wrote about uh, Marcus Garrett needing, needing to develop a more consistent jumper and what you just said. Simply, I'm just a huge fan of his. I mean, just talk about does all the little things. You look up w- with all the lineup mm-hmm. stats, the on-off, and whatever he does. The team overall, it's better. The defense is better when he's on. The offense is better. So even though he uh, really wasn't a great shooter and opponents didn't have to guard him, he still found a way to make others better. It's the same kind of, uh, not the same type of uh, 
body frame and position, but Garrison Brooks, he does the same thing for uh, North Carolina in the ACC. So mm-hmm. um, I was like, oh, it's not that important if he develops a shot. He'll still do all the little things. But then the question occurred to me of, can any of the Kansas, the three Kansas bigs actually make a shot or even really attempt a shot outside the paint? And, uh, I mean, McCormick made a free throw line jumper early in the second half of uh, their most recent game, their most recent exhibition game. I swear I almost fainted because he just doesn't do that. So that's when uh, it, I was reminded that, hey, hey, I think you, uh, you watched this team a little bit more than me and you know what you're talking about. So I do 100% agree that it is important for Garrett to develop at least to be a bit of a threat because it's tough to think of any successful team that has had two bigs, which really neither provides any spacing. I mean, I was trying to consider, I mean, what was there, like Ristich and Aiton for Arizona a couple years ago, but even both of them, they at least had... Ristich, you know, he, he was a, they were decent mid-range shooters. Exactly, so that's what I'm saying. Like I would I, say maybe Carolina when they had Kennedy Meeks and um, uh, who they, they Hicks at the four. Yeah, you know what, that, that might be something um, comparable, be about but yeah, yeah. It, it's really tough to mm-hmm. uh, think of how that's going to work. I mean, it's... I mean, they can use one of the bigs as a screener. They they can, but e- even so, it's it's going to be tough, especially to get those uh, famous Kansas pin downs uh, to mm-hmm. to the bigs if the if the spacing is an issue. So, in terms of McCormick, I obviously again you watch them all the time. Is is that free throw line jumper something that could at least pose a consistent threat during the season? I I think so. Um... You know, they, they say the, the Kansas coaches say he's the most improved player in their program. Um, I'm not as big a believer in him, um, but I do think probably one of the things he does do best is, is shoot from 14, 15, 16, 17 feet. Um, I think he can consistently make that at a, at a good enough rate that teams have to at least guard him out there. Um, you know, he's, but for him to hit it, like he's got to be wide open. Like it's a really long, um, release and you know if he's guarded like he's not going to shoot that but if he's wide open you at least um, pull the defense out and then Yudoka's got a little more room to operate um, if you saw my my latest story like the, the first team they, they played in the exhibition they just threw everybody in the paint like mm-hmm. um, an, an extreme level of of just sagging everybody off and I think Kansas will see some some you know odd defensive looks like that. And that's why it's so like, if you're playing Marcus Garrett at the four and you've got three other guys on the floor who can shoot it, then it's not as important maybe for him to be able to hit jump shots. But when he's one of the perimeter guys and you're playing two bigs that absolutely cannot shoot and stretch the floor, that's why it's so important for him to at least be a threat. Mm-hmm. Just because then you can have three guys in the paint without an issue. And that's, you know, it's really hard to run offense when you've got, basically three dudes just just waiting in the paint on you and you've got to hit perimeter jump shots and it's on two guys to hit them so um that's that's why i think it's important for him to, to actually be a, a threat out there yeah maybe the uh the farther spacing um with the three-point line could help a little bit it's not gonna make it's not gonna make a totally into a totally different college mm-hmm. basketball world but it's possibly possible it could help because i mean in the, in the past, I mean, it's it's tough to just have two bigs, period, who are high usage. That's what made it 
I mean, just Wendell Carter and Marvin Bagley were so skilled, and they really ran a great high-low Carter to Bagley. And even then, it was still it was it was just still tough at times, mm-hmm. even with guys as skilled as Carter and Bagley, who I think uh, should have been used more in the pick and pop because both of them had the potential to shoot, so they could space more. So yeah, it should be interesting to. Uh, to see how uh, they're used in that aspect. So, uh, yeah, but, I, but again, I do agree definitely about um, how Garrett, if he can have a respectable mid-range um, or farther out, I think that'll help a lot. Do you think um, last season with McCormick, I mean, Kansas was worse with him on the court um, with all mm-hmm. the lineups and the stats. And with, when you just look at stats, I want to get the kind of the story behind the stats do you think that was kind of just a freshman type of thing or or what? Because, I mean, they used tons of lineups. And when McCormick was involved, the offense was a bit down, the defense was a bit down. So uh, it was kind of curious in terms of why that happened and what what has he done to improve um, his ability to help the team as a whole this season? You know, on the defensive end, he's while he's a really, really big dude, He's not as much of a presence as a rim protector as Yudoka was. Um, you know, I don't think he's got a super long wingspan. He's not um, very quick twitched. Um, his body looks great, but he's like he's not as athletic as he looks. Um, so defensively, he's a little bit limited. Um, offensively, um, you know, he doesn't do a whole ton. He finishes well around the basket, um, but in terms of like post moves, you know, there's not a a ton there um he's got that decent little face-up jumper that we've hit on and then um you know bill self you, you hit on the post pins that's such an important part especially for a five man to be able to execute that and and traditionally younger guys in his, his program haven't been as good at it um it's something that you get a lot better at with experience and so i think that was the case um with him last year he didn't get a ton of those um, where, you know, he'll probably get a little bit better at that this year. Um, but it, it is a tricky fit just because, um, you know, you playing him next to Udoka, um, the fact that McCormick can hit that, that little spot up free throw line jumper is going to help a little bit. But, um, the, the one thing I will say is self is, um, he's not necessarily married to playing the two bigs all the time. And I think he's willing to, especially in a game where the matchups don't make sense, if it's not working, I think, especially in this Duke game, he'll be willing to go small pretty quickly. And they've got some really big wings that come off the bench. Um, they're freshmen, but... In, yeah, and I definitely uh, I definitely want to get to those. Absolutely. And I yeah, hate to yeah. cut you off, but we'll definitely get to that. The one more uh, question about the bigs, though. What exactly does McCormick, um, what does he do better than... Uh, you say, uh, it's, I'm sorry, you said it's pronounced DeSouza? Sylvia DeSouza. Yeah, yeah. I, always, I always said DeSouza, sorry. Um, yeah, it's DeSouza. Oh, it's a hard one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in terms of athletic quick twitch, I mean, he is a beast. I mean, his rebounding stats were just insane in the games he played. Yeah, yeah. At, at, the, at the end of uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was only, I believe, I think the, like, the last three games when – he got double-digit minutes, and uh, Azubuki got double-digit minutes. So it's not like they've played a bunch together. But I think the rebounding, I mean, geez, that just that last game against Nova, I don't even understand how this is possible. In 10 minutes, he got six offensive rebounds. <laughs> so, um, I mean, in, against Duke, he got 10 rebounds. I mean, he was a rebounding machine. And, well, 
foul rate was, was a problem. I think you could kind of, he was young at that point. So now he, hopefully he's matured a bit mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, kind of awareness in that sense. What makes McCormick a better option than D'Souza? Uh, I think that, that Silvio will probably end up starting. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a coin flip. I, I, I could see him going either way. Um, the things that, that honestly, the only thing McCormick really probably does better is the shooting. And, um, I think it's too early to say on passing. Um, and that, if that's another important part of, of playing that, that, you know, the high part of the high low is, is can you make that pass down into the post? Um, it's too soon to say like, who, who's the better passer of those two? Cause they, they've never been in that role. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think in terms of rebounding, um, guarding, those are things Silvio should be better at. But Silvio is still kind of a raw, even though he's now a third-year college player, he's kind of a raw player. Um, you know, he's a guy that really relies on his athleticism and energy and the, the rebounding. Um, but he struggles to guard out on the perimeter a little bit. Um, his freshman year, because he came around halfway through the season, he – didn't have much of a grasp of the offense. They were pretty limited in what they could run when he was on the floor. Mm -hmm. But now that he's been around for a few years, you know, that, that's, those shouldn't be issues. But um, in terms of just his comfort level playing the four, it's not a ton there. And, you know, he's better off as a five, but because of having these three guys and wanting to, you know, they're three pretty good college players. You want to get all three of them minutes you know, they're going to have to play two of them together at times. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't be shocked in this first game if if self goes to smaller lineups a little quicker than, than you would expect. Okay, and last thing before we get to those other options, I think, uh, well, the four will be probably the most talked about team factor in what goes on with Kansas this mm -hmm. season. I think the player who could really take them to another level, I mean, obviously, if Devin Dotson – um, sorry, is it Devin or Devon? Devon. Sorry, Devon Dotson. If he if he takes a big step up, obviously that would be huge. I mean, mm -hmm. point guard. But Ochai Abaji, I think the talent is just kind of salivating there. And, uh, I mean, when he was on the floor even last season, when he started to get big minutes, the offense took it up to another level. The defense um, suffered at times. So I'm wondering how his defense has been in terms of as a team defender. I know freshmen, sometimes it takes a bit to learn that, to mm -hmm. learn defense as in all programs, not just Kansas, but his offense, I mean, the athleticism is just, it's nuts. And if he's making threes, as you said, would he make like six um, in their uh, most recent exhibition? He could, he is the guy that he could go from, uh, I guess, a national kind of unknown or on the brink of uh, being known to just all of a sudden exploding into everyone's uh, view and uh, definitely a first-rounder, if not a lotto type of guy. Yeah, he's their best pro prospect, without a doubt. Um, he's looked really, really good so far in these, these two exhibition games, and you, you can't take too much out of them because they're against Division II opponents. Mm -hmm. But just the fact that he's changed his shot, and I think he can consistently make threes at a higher clip this year, um, that's huge. Last year, he really – basically, the scouting report became to run him off the three-point line and make him make a play off the dribble because he was just not confident in that. And he he, he would um, – he just didn't the, – the plays didn't look great when, when he had to put the ball on the floor. But 
Um, I, I turned out a couple of days ago, he had a crossover in the first game into a, a little uh, push shot, like from about 10 feet. That was really, really nice. He's, he's looking a lot more confident when he puts the ball on the floor. Um, I haven't looked at the stats from last night, but I think he might've had like five or six assists, which is really big because his assist rate was really, really low last year. So for him to be able to actually do things off the dribble and consistently make jump shots, I think would be huge for KU's offense. And then defensively, he looks pretty good. He's he's really doing a good job. Because Dotson and, and Garrett are so good at pressuring the ball, there's going to be opportunities to run through passes. And he's really, really good at that. And he's really quick twi- twitched. And he's kind of got good instincts there. So I could see him being a guy that's going to get – you know, a fair number of, of run out dunks just because he, he can run through some passing lanes. Um, so, so you hit it there. I mean, he's he's there down the road. He is the guy that has the most potential as his team to be to be the best player. I don't know if that happens this year, but it, it, it could like he, he's he's been really, really impressive in the in the preseason so far. And um, yeah, I mean, if, if if he continues to play like this now, it's just, again, two exhibition games. But this will probably be his final year at Kansas. Okay, so there's a – I would say, tell me if I'm wrong, there's a definitive six of uh, Garrett, Marks Garrett, uh, Devon Dodson, Oshai Abaji, McCormick, and Azabuki, and D'Souza. Then mm-hmm. after that, from from what I've read from you and what, what I've heard, I think uh, they're hoping Isaiah Moss can be that uh, knockdown shooter. He's a grad transfer. Mm-hmm. And um, so he might be the seventh. I, I, tell me if he's healthy because – I know there have been some questions about that. He played what, for something like five minutes in the last game, but he's someone who could really, I mean, talking about spreading the floor and giving more spacing on there. He's not going to help the defense much, but just in terms of shooting, I think he could present a big positive there. And then after that, I mean, I don't know how deep self typically goes, but mm-hmm. it almost seems like it'll be a fight for the eighth spot between three guys, Jalen Wilson, Tristan and Aruna and Christian Brom, who can all possibly have the potential to play, as you were saying, as that uh, small ball four. So am I right that Moss, mm-hmm. they're hoping would be kind of the seventh man and the other guys are fighting for that eighth spot. Could it go even deeper than eight? And is there anyone else we should keep an eye on? Uh, yeah. I mean, you pretty much hit it there. Um, Moss is, in terms of his health, um, like you said, he, he played a few minutes last night, and then they shut it down at halftime just because they didn't want to run him back out there. Uh, because it's a hamstring, you know, you you don't want to, like, sit for a while and play again. So I think they would just want to see see him out in the game, actually get a few minutes, get, get the comfort of kind of getting those first game jitters out, and then get him off and, you know, hope, hope that he can play against Duke. So – I wouldn't play expect him to play heavy, heavy minutes against Duke, but I think as long as nothing happens between now and Tuesday in terms of him tweaking it in practice, I, I would expect that he plays anywhere from maybe 10 to 20 minutes, kind of depending how it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, you know, the, the three freshmen, um, I've been, um, you know, the, the highest rated of those kids was Jalen Wilson. Um, he's probably played the worst among the three in terms of just the two exhibition games. Um, but he's a guy that, that can shoot at 6'8", got good size. Um, in terms of that four bo- a small four spot, though, they can also put Garrett there, who's a guy they obviously trust. And then, you know, the other two, Christian Brown, um, he's a guy that actually will play a li- 
you could see him play a little bit of point guard for them just because Marcus Garris, the only other point guard on the roster, kind of a point guard. Um, Brown's played a little bit of point guard so far in the two exhibition games. He's a guy that shoots it pretty well, um, can handle it a little bit. Um, they, they talk about him a lot in terms of hustle plays and keeping extra balls alive. That's always something – that's a way to get to Bill Self's heart, and <laughs> he, he does that a good job of that. And then in Aruna um, is probably the guy that's got the highest ceiling of those three. Um, the problem with him right now is I don't think he his, his jump shot's very far along. But, man, he's really long and really smooth and, and pretty good player off the bounce um, in terms of, like, pro potential among those three. You know, he – He's still got a ways to go, but like he's he's got a lot. You can see a lot of ability there. So so like you said, I think one of those two, maybe two or three, or maybe two of the three, actually get some minutes against Duke. Um, we'll kind of see how the the game plays out. But I think um, all those guys self maybe trust them enough to to give them a chance and just kind of go with the hot hand and turn in, in, when it comes to like a big game like that. One more player um, topic, and then we'll finish up with a couple of team uh, strategic uh, points. Yeah. All right, so Yudoka Azabuki. I mean, 2017, he tore ligaments in his left wrist after 11 games, missed the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. 2018, sprained left MCL, missed the Big 12 tournament, but came back fine for the NCAA tournament. So that was uh, – you can't uh, harp on that. But then 2019, sprained his right ankle in the seventh game, missed the next four games, played two games, then tore a ligament. In his uh, right wrist in practice, missed the rest of the Same season. Same injury on on both hands. Yes, I mean, considering the deal. varied areas on his body, you would assume it's random. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of still is worrisome considering how vital he's expected to be for Kansas. I mean, I think in terms of Kansas, they really – I mean, they don't have much more experience than Duke. That's why I'm saying, like, Azubuki may be a senior, but in terms – he's played – Really, I think he played one conference game last year. There's only been one season where he's played more than one conference game. And, uh, I mean, Garrett's really the only one who has more than one season of action. So, Garrett, a lot's mm-hmm. going to be on his shoulders in terms of leadership. But Azabuki, I mean, he is who I would assume is at least is starting out the season as uh, kind of the go-to guy on offense and a guy like that. I mean, he shot, was it one for nine from the free throw line, two exhibition games. Is it, is that a, uh, a worry for someone you're hoping is the go-to guys It time for you to check back with the anonymous Kansas player from one of your articles who predicted he shoot <laughs> 93 to 93% this year. Something stupid like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm the free throw shooting is obviously concerned and the experience for Doak I think he's got plenty of experience. I mean, he he played most of that sophomore season and got to you know on a team that, that made the Final Four. So I I for for just him like experience wise, I think he's got plenty of experience, um, even though he's missed all that time. But yeah, the free throw shooting's the 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 one big huge concern. He's he's in the best shape of his life. Um, stamina has been a thing in the past. I think he's in he's in much better shape, which in terms of injuries, that that can be important just because you can get sloppy when you are tired. Right. And a lot of times injuries can happen then. Um, so I think that's that's big for him. Um, obviously, like you said, a lot of injury. He's just kind of had some weird injury luck. Um, some of that can be random, but the free throw shooting is the, the biggest concern for him. And and it's I think if you 
take if you go to a KU practice, he probably shoots in the range 60 to 70 percent range in free throws, which Kansas would take in games if they could get it. I, so I think at this point it's a mental block, um, and that happens, guys. Guys, free throw shooting is anybody who knows who, who's played. It's I'd say 70 percent mental. And, um, you know, I think he, he's got a mental block there. And the fact he didn't shoot him well in the, in the two exhibition games is, is troublesome just because he needs to, to see the ball go in from, from the free throw line. So, yeah, that, that's a worry. But when he does go out, this Kansas roster is more prepared to handle that than it has been the last few years just because there, there, there wasn't a lot of depth. But now that you have Dave McCormick as a sophomore and Silvio's back, and both those guys are better playing the five than they are playing the four. It's a drop-off from Doak just because he's better defensively and he's better offensively. But I think a lot of teams would take their backup five men being McCormick or, or DeSosa. De, De so it's not um, you know, a huge, huge issue when, when Yudoka's off the floor, but Kansas is definitely better with him on both ends. Uh, one thing that's been a big concern for you, at least uh, what you wrote, is the defense the two bigs in the defensive pick and roll coverage and the responsibilities? Mm-hmm. So I will say, at least for this game, it could affect them a lot of games. And who knows what Duke what will happen with Duke this year? But it's been kind of fascinating how I'm not sure that will be a problem because Duke barely runs pick and roll, and they used to run it a lot more. It's been a weird downward trend um, in terms of how often they've run it, even though they run it really well when they do. I mean. You go uh, 2007, 23% of the time, uh, number 11 in points per possession. 2008, 11% of the time, uh, number 46 in points per possession. And it just goes down. And by the time you get to, uh, let's see, 2017, they were they ranked number uh, – I'm sorry, when I said 11, I meant they ranked number 11. Um, but uh, 2017, they were ranked number 297 in the country in percentage of time. And they ranked number one in points per possession. So, I mean, it's just like, why not run it more? Last season, they ranked number 341 in the country in uh, amount of pick and roll run percentage of the time. And it's just, I don't, it, it makes no sense because I think a lot of it is just K's getting these guys who can just give them the ball, get out of the way and watch them go. But now with Trey Jones, he's the first point guard to actually start the previous season's last game at point guard and this season's first game since actually John Shire in 2009 to 2010. He's actually the first point guard to uh, start all the games, hopefully this season, um, in two consecutive years since Greg Paulus the year before Shire. I mean, so maybe the continuity of point guard can help, but I mean, it's just fascinating considering, I mean, a lot of people think Trey Jones was the point guard. In certain ways he was, but I mean, R.J. Barrett was the initiator in half-court offense. For sure. Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of Trey, he ran pick and roll 16.2 percent of the time last year. There was a hundred one thousand one hundred eighty three players in Division One who ran at least 50 possessions of pick and roll. And when sorting by percentage, Trey's 16.2 percent of the time ranked one thousand one hundred two again out of one thousand one hundred eighty three. So I mean, when you have a point guard and they want to go to the NBA, especially with everything so pick and roll heavy. These days, you would think Kay would prepare, but that's just not how he's done it. I mean, in, in mm-hmm. with his history with point guards, so that wasn't necessarily just go on a big tangent. It was how it's related 
to Kansas, so we'll see. But I mean, even other guys like Wendell Moore, he uh, he seemed he hesitates right now in terms of when he gets a high screen or a side screen, he doesn't quite know what to do with it. That comes with experience. But uh, I think a lot of Duke players, they uh, it's going to take time. I think there's a lot of unknown. But just in terms of Kansas maybe struggling against the pick and roll, I'm not sure if that'll be something that Duke can or will take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, the I think the as I hit on earlier, the the matchup problem that would be um, the toughest for Kansas is is Matthew Hurd at the four, um, just because he's he's comfortable playing out to the three point line, and however you get him the ball, you know, I know they I, from watching that Northwest Missouri game, they they got him the ball at the elbow a lot and kind of isolated him there. Um, that could be something that Kansas even struggles to guard too, um, just because those bigs aren't used to playing a guy that, that puts the ball on the floor. Um, but I do think Hurt right now is a more effective player in the mid-range and around the basket than he than he probably is from the three-point line. Um, but that that's the guy that I think if Duke is going to try to run a lot of stuff through, um, that's the guy that you would you would try to go to if if I'm Duke. Um, just because I, I think he's a he's a matchup problem for Kansas. But in terms of the rest of Duke's personnel, just watching that game, um, you know, I think Kansas matches up okay with him. Um, and 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 that's the guy that that you're gonna you're gonna circle on the scouting report if if, you, if you're Kansas. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of wait and see with Duke this season. That's why it's mm-hmm. kind of it's it's a lot it's a lot of guessing right now. But in terms of hurt, I will say he might have uh, looked a little bit better than we'll than we'll see at least early in the season because he's not the strongest guy. I mean, there's there's been a lot of Ryan Kelly comparisons, and you can see like Duke was lost in 2012 when he went out against Lehigh mm-hmm. of what to do. They couldn't make a strategic change to get someone like Ryan Kelly the ball at the elbow. But Ryan Kelly, he didn't play much his first two years because he just wasn't strong enough. And Hurt, while he is stronger and everyone's more skilled these days as freshmen when they come in, but I do think the two exhibition opponents that Duke played made it easier for him because he was bigger and the strength wasn't a factor. I think Mm -hmm. while his speed, his versatility, and just his skill set makes him a really tough matchup he, I mean, he's been quoted as saying he wants to be that nightmare matchup. I do think uh, Kansas could try to bully him a bit or at least be more physical. So we'll see how he responds to that because he was able to score inside against smaller guys that didn't have as much strength with the Division Two. But we'll see. I mean, Kansas, I mean, there's bulk on those guys. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll see how he responds to that. And I think another thing will be Vernon Carey. He has a nice offensive skill set. Um, defense, I'm really interested to see if he gets in early foul trouble because if that happens, um, Kansas could have the advantage there. I think it's going to be a pretty a pretty uh, ugly game <laughs> if I had to make a guess. I think, <laughs> I think it'll be low. Yeah, bet the under. Yeah. Yeah, because I think both teams don't quite know exactly. Well, Duke doesn't know exactly what their offense will be. It's just whatever's working at the time, go with it. And Kansas, I think they're going to start out with really featuring the bigs down low. But as the season progresses, I think we might see that kind of move towards other directions while still not saying go away from the bigs, just not feature as much as you might see in the first game. I mean, with this Champions Classic, that's why I I do – I really – I'm kind of jealous – of the Big 12 SEC, how they have that later in the season. I think the Champions Classic would be perfect 
to have like the first Tuesday after the Super Bowl when teams are more developed. I understand how it's tough to kind of just stick in there, but I mean, you just, I mean, Kentucky, they were just a deer in the headlights last season against Duke. And I thought everyone kind of overreacted to the result mm-hmm. of that game. And I think Kansas, Michigan state was pretty ugly there. And it's just, I mean, it's fun. I can see why they want to have the big name teams, but I don't think there's a ton of takeaways we can get each season. But uh, I, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, Kay, he said he's just going to play whatever works. He's going to make it more like hockey line ho- type of rotations where you could even go like five in, five out. I've heard that before. We'll see how it progresses throughout the season. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this should be this should be an interesting game uh, no matter how it goes. I mean, De- Devon Dotson and Trey Jones is obviously going to be a big focus matchup at point guard. Yeah, I think it'll be really important who gets more like pick sixes because um, I think both teams are really going to try to pressure on the perimeter. You know, that's Trey Jones' best strength. Um, Dawson's really good at it. Garrett's really good at it. So getting easy buckets out of the transition from getting easy steals, I think both teams are going to try that. Um, that'll be something that's important. And then, you know, how are they able to handle Yudoka? Um you hit it, you know, a freshman big man going against Yudoka Azubuke. Like, that's a scary proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure they'll send a lot of help. But if Kansas is able to get him touches and, and you know, take advantage of of that age disparity, um, that's something that, that, that they'll try to – you know, they're going to try to go to Yudoka early and often. So so we'll see. But, um, yeah, it, it'll be – I think it'll – We'll, we'll learn. The nice thing about this game is you do learn some things about the team. I think you're smart to say, hey, don't overreact to this game mm-hmm. uh, because Kentucky ended up being a really, really good college basketball team. Like that team could have easily made the Final Four last year. Um, so, you know, you, you can't overreact to these games too much. But um, I, I love the setup just because, hey, what better way to kick off the college basketball season than, than getting four of the most pro- – best programs in the country and having them play it's a good the, way to to remind everybody hey college basketball is back is this the first year that all four teams have been top the top four teams at least based on uh, ap in the country because i'm pretty sure they're ranked number one through four it might have been the same last year oh okay well then <laughs> I, 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 if, if i remember right because kansas was one um yeah, I think Kentucky might have been two, Duke might have been three, and Michigan State might have been four. I could be wrong, but it was if it if it wasn't that way, it was close to that way last year. Okay, would you say there's an X factor in terms of player and an X factor in terms of team for this game? Um, you know, just something to keep an eye on. Yeah, obviously for for Duke, I think it hurts the the big one. Um, for Kansas, like a if if a Ochai Baji goes off, that could be very good for Kansas. Like, I think when he's good this year, um, Kansas will be a different team. So um, I, I'd say he's the, the X factor. And if you're looking for somebody, like, off the bench, um, you know, maybe Ma- Moss is a guy that can come in and get hot. And, like, last year, you know, in the past for Iowa, he was inconsistent in terms of his production. But when he would get hot, like, he could reel off – like 15 points in like five minutes type thing. Um, so even if he doesn't play a lot of minutes because Duke's going to be so concentrated on slowing those big guys and probably sending extra help, he's a guy that could take advantage of that and maybe reel off, um, you know, two or three threes. 
Yeah, I mean, Abaji's definitely someone to watch. I think a guy who shocked me in terms of how poised he was, and again, as you've been saying with the exhibitions, it is exhibitions. The level of competition is a lot. Um, it's not going to be what they see in, against yeah. each other on Tuesday. But at the same time, I'm from the little I watched of Cassius Stanley in high school. Yeah, he was an athlete, but he kind of would vanish from games for long portions of the time. And he, did, he just didn't do anything to stand out. And he's been someone who, just in terms of his skill set, his poise, his decision making, his defense. I don't know if he's going to have a huge impact this specific game, but I think he's someone that his role will continue to grow into mm-hmm. the point where, like, he's going to be. I mean, I don't. He's just a really. He he jumped off the page to me in in the uh, blue white scrimmage and countdown to craziness in the both exhibition games. He's been easily the most consistent player, and I think it's just a matter of when they start actually running more sets for him. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the struggle with Duke is offensive is half-court offense. Last year they could get away with it because they forced so many turnovers and Zion could just go crazy. And RJ, he's, he was ready for the NBA last year. This year they don't have guys who can just – you can give them the ball and say, go get it. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have to be more creative. So that's where someone like Cassius Stanley, I think his role could grow. But I'm not sure how – that will affect Tuesday's game. But, uh, yeah, I mean, with, with Duke, the X Factor could be anywhere near a billion different things. I, I mean, it comes down to, I think, points off live ball turnovers is probably, at least early in the season, going to make uh, the biggest impact in whether they win or lose right there. But I do think the game's going to be pretty mu- kind of ugly, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, um, so uh, – yeah, well, we got good. Is there anything else about Kansas you think uh, it would it would help anyone else to know going into uh, the game, going into the season in terms of the matchups? I think we've pretty much covered everything. You, you're a great help, but uh, is there anything we might have forgotten? No, that's, I, I think we got it all, man. All right, excellent. Um, well, CJ, uh, how can everyone um, see, see your work, uh, both written and, uh, I guess, on Twitter or any, anywhere anybody can get in contact with you? I am uh, – you can find my work at The Athletic and then um, CJ Moore Hoops on Twitter. So you can, you can find me there. Excellent. I really encourage everyone to do that. I told him before we started this was kind of my excuse to really just talk to him because with uh, college basketball coverage, CJ does – he covers it in pretty much the way that at least appeals to me the most, which is a great combination of fantastic writing in terms of narratives. And when I say narratives, people get that confused with soft narratives. That's the bad narratives. Um, the narratives just in terms of all the stories, both in games and out of games, but also then you combine that with great analysis and coverage using analytics to a point but not over-relying on it. He does a great job, so I just wanted to kind of uh, – chat with with him for a while and cj thanks so much for doing this i really look forward to uh to seven o'clock at least eastern time on tuesday i assume you will be at the game yeah i fly out on uh monday looking forward to it. it's gonna be fun how many times have you been to madison square garden the mecca this is actually uh i've been to new york several times but and i've i've covered um games at barclays but i've never been to to madison square garden so that's gonna oh, be really? the first so i'm excited yeah Last, uh, what, what's the what's the what you would say was the most impressive or just best venue you've been to in college basketball? 
Um, I'm, I'm gonna probably. Uh, okay, let me first say you're not allowed to say uh, fog. Okay, I, I was gonna say fog and Cameron. I think are the two best venues in college basketball that I've been to. So, um, the, the the atmospheres at those two places are nobody else can touch it. Have you been to uh, uh this? Uh, I'm an idiot. Uh, what, what's Butler's again? Hinkle Fieldhouse. Hinkle, yeah. I have. I've been to Hinkle several times. I've never actually covered a game there. So. Um, I, I would like to do that, but the, the, uh, the venue's cool. The, the one, the one really cool thing about that place is the, so old, there's like dead spots all over the floor. So <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of very Indiana ish, but, um, yeah, that, that's one where I haven't covered a game would like to, cause it's a, it's one of those buildings when you walk in, you, you do feel like it's a, it's something different. Excellent. Okay. Well, again, look forward to uh, Tuesday and I will definitely be following your work. Thanks so much for giving your input, which is sure to help us get prepared for Tuesday and should be a fun kickoff to the season for the Champions Classic, Duke versus Kansas, 7 o'clock Eastern time at Madison Square Garden. Let's get uh, the season started. Thanks for joining me, CJ. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on, Bob. Ladies, gents, one thing remains. All right, I am joined by North Carolina beat reporter Brant Wilkerson New. He is covering North Carolina for Heels Maven and producing some great content there. So North Carolina just played their first exhibition game. Well, I guess technically, well, yeah, their, their only exhibition game because they had the scrimmage against, what was it, Villanova and Minneapolis? Yeah, they, uh, they, they, met, Mindy, or they, they met Villanova in Chapel Hill um, a couple Sundays ago. It sounded like a pretty split uh, deal where it wasn't, um, it wasn't just a 40-minute scrimmage or anything like that. They had different sections with – Teams playing uh, zone defense for a while. They had the reserves playing for a while, but um, Cole Anthony had a great day. So um, it sounded like, you know, a pretty pretty even thing that they got a lot of, out of that day. You know what I was thinking of? I think it was Michigan State and Gonzaga that play in Minneapolis. They've played the past two years. So, yeah, that's probably made no sense to you when I said Minneapolis. All right, this is going to be – and thank you for joining me, Brant. And I, I kind of want to give – I don't usually do previews of any kind, but I already talked to uh, C.J. Moore, great beat reporter for The Athletic for Kansas, and since Duke's starting out their season there, I talked to him a little bit. And just since UNC, I think uh, everyone at this point knows the rivalry, the Tobacco Red rivalry. So this is, I guess, the rare team that no matter what, I would always just want to hear thoughts on North Carolina and how their season was going to go, even if Duke and North Carolina aren't playing for months. So uh, this will be pretty cool to uh, find out a little more. All right, so last season, I mean, everything looked good for North Carolina. I mean, they were rolling going into the tournament. Obviously, they lost to Duke on the last second shot when Zion came back, but still, they looked great. Their defense was good, great shooting team, one of the best passing North Carolina teams I've seen in a while, they had the kind of speedy offense with Kobe White. And then, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I hate to say it as a cliche, but it's the same thing whenever North Carolina goes down. I always say there's, uh, or the same thing no matter what, there's three guarantees of all Roy coached UNC teams. 
Number one, and tell me if I'm wrong, number one, play fast. Number two, attack the offensive glass. And number three, what I call 3D phobia, which is the fear of guarding threes. And uh, that kind of took effect, the last one especially, versus Auburn, when I think they made something like nine threes in the first ten minutes of the second half, and it all went wrong. So uh, yep. were you surprised? I know at that point in time you were covering kind of all of the North Carolina teams, but I still you obviously noticed what was going on. Did you think, were you surprised at just how quickly it all kind of happened all at once? Um, or is that something where it's just North Carolina, they don't guard, they're not, they typically don't guard threes very well. So, so it's always the possibility when you, when you take that risk. Yeah, absolutely. There's always been kind of a, a thing. I don't know if it's a running joke or just uh, the gallows humor of Carolina fans that they know that at least once or twice a year, some team is going to have the most insane three-point shooting game of its season against them. Um, it just happened to uh, be at the really wrong possible time <laughs> against Auburn. And Auburn's a really good team, and we should have probably expected them to do what they did. They're the most exper- experienced team to make the Final Four in the past 20 years uh, as far as uh, you know, having upperclassmen. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I – I think it was a surprise the way it happened, but then there were the factors where the Carolina team had been completely ravaged by a flu bug that week. Uh, Cameron Johnson was sick. Nazir Little had been sick. Um, don't know, you know, just how close to 100% they were. So it was tough circumstances. They ran into a team that was playing incredible basketball, and you know, Carolina had some some youth on that team in, in some spots, and. Um, yeah, it, it was a sudden ending, just like it was a sudden ending the, the year before against Texas A&M. Yeah, and then this year's team, it's just, I mean, a lot of experience. I mean, you say that team was youthful, and now uh, Cam Johnson's gone, and uh, what was it, like 75th-year senior Luke May, he, he's gone now, and um, Kenny Williams, great shooter, even better defender, he's gone and Kobe White, like the ultimate play-fast point guard for Roy, he's gone. So now it's pretty much so much is on Cole Anthony's shoulders. And everyone else, it's almost like uh, with Duke, you're looking at these guys who you think could be, they would be great kind of role players and do everything to make life easier for the star players. But at least one or two of them kind of you're, you're hoping one of, they can step up and be number two to Cole Anthony because Cole Anthony, I think he is uh, he, he's something. He's going to be at least one of the best freshmen in the country, possibly one of the best players in the country. I'm really impressed, especially with his change of speed. He's not the most dynamic athlete, though, so it could wear him down eventually if it's just constantly on his shoulders 100% to create offense all the time. So... I guess who on North Carolina is most likely to be the number two scorer for uh, for the team this year? I think uh, Christian Keeling is the guy that is kind of that best second pure scorer role. He's the kid from Charleston Southern that transferred to Carolina as a grad transfer. Um, looked really good at times in the uh, exhibition game on Friday night. I guess uh, as well as most people could look because Roy Williams was really unhappy with his team uh, based on defense and the way they were passing the ball and that kind of thing. But uh, Keeling, he's a proven scorer. He put up 18.7 last season at Charleston Southern. He stepped in, had 14 in the exhibition. And I think, you know, I think he's going to be a double figure guy probably in that 
12, 14, 15 point range. Um, he can shoot the ball. He can get to the basket. He's a pretty good athlete. So I think he's going to be a, a really, um, you know, a big time fit for them on the perimeter. He's great in transition. I think Justin Pierce is going to be capable of having some big games. I'm not sure if he'll be necessarily as consistent because he's coming from playing the four spot at William and Mary where he's a great shooter. Um, that That's where he's going to have a really big game or two. Uh, he's going to get really hot from three, knock down some shots out there. And he, he's probably mostly going to fit at the three for Carolina this season. Um, Leaky Black, he uh, he only took two shots the other night. He's a, a really in the vein of um, Theo Pinson as far as being a playmaker. He does so many little things well, and it doesn't have to be scoring in the way that he affects the game. I think he, he could be a guy that will have a big game uh, occasionally as far as scoring goes. And then, but the the really big thing for him is going to be playing defense, uh, setting up his teammates. Uh, he, he had great assist numbers the other night, so he he's dynamic. And I think there's there's a lot of guys that can pop up, but definitely Keeling is going to be the guy who is most consistent as that number two threat. I think. Yeah, that actually, I mean, you, you've you've seen him so much more, and yet that agrees with a lot of what I said. I did an ACC preview, uh, was it a week or two ago, and yeah, I called Keeling kind of a microwave guy who could really put up a lot of numbers, who might make Roy's head explode at, time with, at times with maybe sh- overshooting sometimes, which would allow it to be a good combo with like him and uh, Brandon Robinson. Robinson, more of a 3 and D guy, kind of he can use better judgment on shots at time, can kind of be a savior when uh, Keeling gets a little too aggressive. But Brandon Robinson, he uh, what, what did he tweak his ankle? Yeah, he tweaked his ankle pretty bad. It was a sprain officially. No no damage. Uh, the x-rays came back on negative negative on Saturday morning, but he was on crutches when we went back to, to talk to players the other night. Um, so he's going to be out for a little bit. They don't have a timetable for his return, but he looked great in the few minutes that he was able to play the other night. He, uh, he, he was looking for his shot. He looked really confident. Got to the free throw line uh, for six free throws in five minutes, which is pretty incredible for a guy who was used to, you know, he would come in occasionally. Um, he he'd never really been a negative much in his Carolina career. He was, he would only play a few minutes, but it always seemed like he would come in and at least fa- affect the game positively, usually by knocking down a three pointer and playing some solid defense. So looks like he is going to, when he gets back in the lineup, he's going to be a little more willing to attack the basket and create his own shot. Yeah. And Leaky Black, actually the player you compared him to, that's exactly who I compared him to as well in terms of the Theo Pinson role, because I think it can add a uh, really impressive element with if he's kind of initiating half-court offense at times, which would allow Cole Anthony to play off-ball. So I I think that could be really good and just uh, be a distributor as much as anything else and play D. So he's really versatile. Um, In terms of uh, the first exhibition game, Roy, as you said, he was not the happiest guy in the world. He uh, called the reason for UNC's mistakes stupidity. He really doesn't mince words. I love that. I think, uh, yeah, I think he also said, I know, they know I can get, I can get mad now. It's been in the back of their minds. They didn't know for sure, but it removed (laughs) any doubt now. It kind of reminded me, one of my all-time favorites was uh, a quote back in 2015, or not a quote, but a tweet from Andrew Carter, who was covering UNC saying, Roy walked out of a film room session the other day and told Kennedy Makes and Bryce Johnson that they'd wind up being professional trash men. More later. Yep. <laughs> I, I just love that. I mean, Roy is he, – he, 
it's impossible to dislike Roy. He's, he's awesome. He just tells it like it is. Whatever he's feeling, he lets he lets you know it. So uh, outside of that, um, how do you think Roy is feeling about what he saw versus? And I also want to ask, how come there's a Winston Salem state but not a Winston Salem? Well, why is that allowed? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that, that is an interesting thing. There, we have an Elizabeth City state, a Winston Salem state, and an Appalachian state. But yeah, we, we we've got a lot of state universities down here. There needs to be rules. There needs to be rules. There are new rules in North Carolina. Um, <laughs> okay, so, but, so yeah. how was Roy feeling about the game? Uh, he, yeah, he wasn't happy in any way, um, which, you know, that's kind of be, to be expected at that point. Carolina had a similar kind of issue with turnovers last year when they played Mount Olive, which, you know, I think that's going to be part of any Carolina offense when you're breaking in a new point guard and you're especially you're breaking in so many new pieces the way that they play offense is going to be an issue a lot of the time early in the season with the way that they're going to turn the ball over. And, and that's exactly what we saw. We just saw, you know, a lot of plays where they weren't as crisp as they needed to be there. I think their leaky black pointed out a time that he tried to throw a pass to Brandon Huffman that, Hey, that, that's a pass that maybe Garrison Brooks can handle or Armando Baycott can handle, but it's not a pass that Brandon Huffman can handle. So um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's just a matter of getting them some time together on the court in, in real game situations. And um, I think, I mean, traditionally we have seen Carolina not be as good as they're going to be, uh, not not even close early in the season. And I think that's especially the case this year with so many newcomers and, and just what they've got to replace from last year. So, you know, I, I don't think that uh, I, I, it, it's possible that they have some issues in the next month as they, they get this thing rolling. Yeah, when I say concern, I mean, obviously take that word with a grain of salt in yeah. uh, late, late October, early November. But at the same time, um, it looked like the guys on, um, was it, uh, Winston-Salem State were just really, they were getting penetration into the lane incredibly easily. All I saw, and, and I hate when people do this, they just like watch a highlight thing, and they, may, and they give opinions on that. So I will say that all I watched was a 15-minute YouTube thing. I didn't actually see the game. So was that just plays that kind of stood out as negatives, or was that a consistent thing where they were getting too easy penetration against uh, North Carolina? No, no, that is uh, that is exactly the case, and it was like that from the start. It didn't get any better in the second half. Uh, Winston-Salem State's actually got a pretty good point guard, Robert Cologne, who is, uh, I think he's a junior now. He's really fast, and he was able to get in the lane a ton. He was able to get inside the perimeter, and at first, uh, Winston-Salem State was kind of getting into the mid-range. They were getting into the lane and, and taking some shots, and obviously they're overmatched near the basket, so they're having a tough time there. But, you know, if Carolina gives up that kind of penetration against an ACC opponent, those are going to be buckets, and they did a little bit better job of cutting off those drives in the second half. But then uh, Carolina was really, really bad as far as getting out on the shooters when Winston-Salem was able to kick the ball out to the to those shooters, which um, they they didn't have a great shooting game. And again, especially with Notre Dame coming to town on, on Wednesday, if Notre Dame's able to do something like that, I mean, that's just free money for them out there. Okay, so kind of themes for this season. Um, on offense – do you think they're going to be as uh, the typical North Carolina team really attacking the glass? Do you think their style is going to be different? Do you think they're going to have to rely more on half-court offense than last season when they were really trying to run up and down? Are they going to be able to get as much transition as last season? 
And are they going to really concentrate on the development of, I actually call it the X factor to North Carolina season, which may be, which may possibly be wrong, but I, I think Armando Bacot, his development is going to be a huge, huge factor for North Carolina. So how do you feel like, I know there are certain things that are going on now, but let's kind of try to project. How do you how do you see their offense looking towards the later portions of the season and how it looks and the strategy and who's going to be most involved? Yeah, well, I was looking actually, you know, the Ken Palm preseason projection numbers, which are always interesting um, because um, it, it actually had them projected at a slightly higher pace than they played last year. No, which, no, Grant, actually, I, let me say, they predict them, that's the fastest pace in UNC history in the Ken Palm era. I actually pointed that out. I saw it, and it's like, what? what? Like, that makes no <laughs> – Yeah, like, that, and then there's no Ken way Palm that's era. going to happen. Yeah, yeah th- there's no way that's going to happen um, because – yeah, I think I think that Kobe White is a point guard that maybe if if Roy Williams were able to genetically engineer a point guard to run his offense, Kobe White was that guy. And uh, as good as Cole Anthony is and and will be, I don't think I just don't think they're going to be able to play as fast because they're they're just not quite as experienced in in understanding you know what they need to do to get out on the break. But one thing that will benefit them really really big time is that I think they're going to be pretty dominant on the boards this season with um, as we get down the stretch. I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure if it's going to start out that way because Armando Bacot is going to have to learn to, uh, you know, that's, that's something that you pick up in the Carolina system and he's a really good offensive player. He's got great hands, but Roy Williams always wants more rebounding out of his, out of his big guys, no matter how well they're doing it. And Garrison Brooks is going to do that for sure. Um, Justin Pierce is kind of an X factor in that he's really athletic. Um, he had really good rebounding uh, rates at, at William and Mary. And I think that he's going to be able to kind of do something similar to that from the three spot, um, which is going to be really huge for Carolina. So I think that's going to be really good. They're going to be your, the, the same rebounding team they've always been. Um, but the, the really big question they're facing is where are, who offensively is going to step up because I think they're they're going to have Cole Anthony kind of in that twenty point average range. Um, maybe they they get Keeling in the the twelve to fifteen point range, but who behind that can can kind of step up and be a third double figure scorer consistently? Um, one of the guys, and I don't think I don't think he's probably going to be a double figure guy, but Andrew Playsack played really great the other night, and it was interesting because he didn't have much of a role at all last season and. He looked like a guy that's going to be capable of coming in and giving them big minutes, um, really giving them some spacing with his ability to shoot the ball. So I think he's going to be kind of a, an important player for them, which is something I'm not, not sure that many of us saw coming. Um, but yeah, as we look down the road, I think it's going to be up to how far this team goes, I think is really a lot of how well Leaky Black develops and, and what he is able to give them in, in every facet of the game. So do you think, um, I mean, it's tough to tell because obviously Winston-Salem State, they're not going to have as big players, they're not going to have as strong players, at least inside, as what North Carolina is going to face most of the time in the ACC. So Backout look impressive, but is he going to be able to do that against a guy like John Mooney or Juwan Durham um, in, in the first game or possibly later in the season? Because, I mean, he just looks really skilled to me. But it's, yeah. it's just tough to tell. You have to take everything with a grain of salt this early in the year. Yeah, he, he played uh, really well in the, that close scrimmage against Villanova. 
he was Carolina's second leading scorer in that. Um, so, you know, as, as much as you can take from a scrimmage and an exhibition, I think people would should be pretty excited about him. But um, again, it's he, he's going to get buckets no matter what. He's he's really skilled. He's a great scorer. He's got um, good hands around the basket. And the the practice that we got to watch, he was able to step out and really had a good looking stroke out right beyond the free throw line. So. Um, as did your guy Garrison Brooks. That's something he's added to his game uh, lately. So that, that's something big for Carolina. But um, yeah, Baycott, I think really what's going to determine how much time that he gets. And, and it could be he could be a 30 minute guy uh, if he is able to go out there and rebound and defend at the level that Roy Williams really wants his big guys to do. Um, that, that's kind of what always limits these really skilled big guys that they have, uh, like like you've seen with uh, Isaiah Hicks and Kennedy Meeks in the past, if if they weren't playing as hard or whatever, he he's not afraid to keep a guy that can score on the bench. You speak, uh, speaking of Garrison Brooks, uh, absolutely, he he is my guy. He was my favorite glue guy in the ACC last year. I mean, you look at the stats, you look, you go through the lineups and the on off and everything. Um, when you really add up, you don't just look at one thing. He makes everyone better. You compare every single person when they're in the lineup with Garrison Brooks. They do better. I mean, I re- I was reading articles last year about how he takes so much time in preparation to learn where guys uh, where they want the screen to free them up to to get open or for the jump shot off the dribble. I mean, he really pays attention to the details. And now from reading uh, an article you wrote a couple weeks ago, or maybe a little bit longer, he's really been improving um, factors in his offensive game to uh, I th- what would make me happy, allow him to get a little uh, individual shine or more individual shine. So what exactly has he worked on and is hoping to improve for this upcoming season? Yeah, he looked really good um, as far as his movement uh, last yeah, on, on Friday night, and that's something I asked him about. He's never been a guy that like doesn't move well or anything like that, but he looked really he looked quicker. He looked like he was beating people to spots. I know he beat uh, he beat people to spots to get a couple steals, which was impressive, and he was moving really well out beyond the perimeter. Got a steal out there and caused. Um, he disrupted a, a passing lane one time that caused Winston Salem State to get thrown out of their offense pretty well. So um, he looks like he's moving really well. And I asked him about that, and he said it's just a matter of being more confident and having a really good understanding of, of what he's supposed to do out there. So I think that alone is going to get him some buckets where he's just um, he's going to beat guys to spots under the basket and, and get himself in a good good position to score. Um, I think he's gotten better that the one day that we watched practice, he, and that that's kind of the most mind blowing thing I saw that day. I think he had Hubert Davis or one of the other assistants, maybe Steve Robinson, just feeding him jumpers out at the top of the, the key. And he was knocking down one after another and his stroke looked really good. And he said, he's always kind of had it, but he, he really feels confident in it now. So I think, yeah, I think Garrison Brooks is, uh, he, you know, as much as Cole Anthony is going to be the, the scoring MVP uh, of this team, I think Garrison Brooks might be the actual kind of glue heart and soul MVP because he's going to be their best rebounder. He's going to be their best defender by a pretty wide margin. And he's I think he's definitely kind of taken on that role as, as the best on court leader for this team. One guy actually popped into my mind just now um, as a possibility. Let me know what you think. Um, and comps, they're all kind of. It's just, I guess, opinions in some way. But when I think of Armando Bacot, like, do you remember? Like, I mean, obviously you remember, but does he have a comparable skill set to Tony Bradley? 
Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that that's actually a pretty good one. Um, Tony Bradley is probably a little bit better of a rebounder um, at this point in his career because Tony Bradley posted these insane rebounding rates for the little bit of time that he played his freshman year, but he was also incredibly efficient offensively. So I think that that, that is a fair comparison, yeah. Okay, so other guys, I mean, you got Anthony Harris, you got, I mean, you've mentioned Justin Pierce, there's Huffman inside, uh, there's Walker Miller, he's young, but he got some minutes, uh, Playtech, Shea Rush got a couple minutes, and then uh, Sterling Manley, who uh, I believe is injured. Is there anything, if you can kind of run down some of the other guys that can possibly contribute and maybe say who you feel has the best chance um, to uh, make more of an impact as the season goes on? Yeah, I think Anthony Harris getting back would be a big deal. I'm not sure if that's actually going to happen or or what. He's still dealing with a high school knee injury that he's got, so he might be able to come back and give them some minutes uh, later in the season, a backup point guard, which is something they really, really need because they, they've had to pull someone up from the JV squad just to, to have enough to practice right now. Um, I, I think Playtech is going to be a good player um, for them in – spots off the bench just to give them some shooting. And I, I was actually, um, you know, it was a little bit surprising the amount of time that Walker Miller got on the floor the other night. Um, Roy alluded to that a few years ago that when he got there and he said, you know, I think he's going to be a good player for us as, you know, not, not just your typical walk on. And he went out and played 11 minutes and uh, he had a couple points, a couple rebounds. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be surprised to see him get into the lineups on there. Um, Huffman had a, a really nice night. Um, I'm not sure if that's because they were just playing an opponent that he was able to, to overmatch with his size and strength, but um, he, he looked pretty good right around the basket. He didn't look so great uh, when he stepped away from the basket. I think there was a, a little bit of a jump shot looking uh, situation that he took, which was not great, but he was dominant in the, uh, the 11 minutes. He was out there around the basket with the eight, eight rebounds uh, and then the eight points. So, I think if they get into a game against a, a team like Virginia that wants to slow down the pace and and beat you up inside, I think Huffman is getting himself to the point where he could be a reasonable option for to give you a few minutes to go in there and bang around in the, in the paint. So, um, yeah, uh, Leaky Black, though, that, that's the guy that keeps coming back to you where I'm like, he's got to – I really think he's going to be the guy that decides how good this team is. Oh yeah, I wasn't. I definitely wasn't counting him as one of the other guys. I mean, he's someone yeah. who I believe will definitely be in the rotation. I kind of feel bad for uh, Sterling Manley because he's he's shown promise at times, but he just he he can't kind of rid himself of the injury bug. And what what is going on with him right now? Yeah, it's uh, it sucks because he's a he's a super nice kid. He's always been really good to talk to. Um, and the the knee injury that kind of started flaring that. Um, it popped up around, I think, Christmas last year, kept him out for most of the rest of the season, came back right around the ACC tournament for a little bit, um, had off-season surgery, was, I think he was kind of on track to get back, but it never really happened, and they took him out again right around the start of practice to, to get him healthy, and he just said it's basically time and just trying to put in the work, and get healthy, but it, it really, it sounds awful because I mean, they, they were saying, uh, Roy Williams was asked about in the preseason. He said, I have no idea. I've got no timetable. They don't even really know what's causing the soreness. So, um, you know, I, I would hate to see him end up in a situation where maybe this is a career ender or something like that, because 
Uh, super nice kid, and and he was able to he. The thing was, is you always had to look at his numbers for in really small sample sizes. But in the time that he was out there, um, as he's been battling injuries and all that kind of thing, he's been really efficient with his offense, and he, he's had great rebounding rates. So if he could get himself right, he could definitely be a guy that that really helps them. Okay, it's interesting how Coach K, he really, really respects the ACC, as everyone does, but that's the reason he kind of says he he avoids playing uh, road games whenever possible in non-conference, unless like the ACC Big Ten, like this year with Michigan State. Um, he also d- really doesn't like playing assistant coaches. Roy, um, he he kind of embraces it in terms of having a tough non-conference schedule in terms of playing anyone anywhere he actually plays his his assistants a lot or ex-assistants and uh this season is no different i believe um according to kempon they have like the uh among power teams they have the uh, toughest uh, non-conference along with kansas so uh they're really challenging there's actually a chance they could play gonzaga twice because uh what, what yeah they, they could play uh, they're going to Atlanta, and uh, Gonzaga is in that, and kind of the team that they're set up to play in the championship if should things work out. But I think it could also be Seton Hall. They could they could run into Michigan or Ohio State in the second round of or Ohio State, Iowa State in the second round of that tournament. Um, both of those teams are a little down from where they were last year, but pretty good. Um, and then yeah, Carolina goes to Gonzaga in December in Spokane, which is going to be awesome. Um, trying to trying to figure out. If that's something I'm going to be able to travel to as as we get the site rolling and off the ground, and um, the one I'm really excited about, obviously this week, uh, UNC is going down to play against uh, UNC Wilmington, where I went to school, and um, his former assistant CB McGrath. So it's going to be a really awesome night um, in, in Wilmington, and I think it's a cool thing. Um, I understand the logic behind some coaches don't like to play road games as much as others, and. Um, because there are no road games in the NCAA tournament, which makes perfect sense. So um, it, it just, I guess it depends on what you want out of your schedule. And um, it, it's cool, I think, that, that Roy is willing to go on the road and give us these cool non-conference matchups and uh, put, you know, one of the, the five premier programs in America in a mid-major 6,000-seat uh, arena in Wilmington in November. So it's going to be a really awesome night for the for the arena down there in the city and it's going to be a fun scene. Has, has he been asked at any time recently just in terms of his mentality when scheduling non-conference? Um, not uh, – I mean, he's talked about kind of about what the schedule has done um, as far as limiting some of those games. Like they used to have a series with Kentucky that was awesome, went on for years. And I think he's kind of talked about how, you know, going to 18 and 20-game schedules is going to end that stuff and – um, I think he wants his team to get the experience of, of playing in tough arenas. And um, I think he's, you know, I think he's got a certain respect for, um, I don't know, maybe uh, how do you, I'm not, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, just kind of the pageantry of it all and, and what fans might get out of, you know, Hey, this is a, this is a really good thing for the game and, and people to enjoy and that sort of thing. So um, I, I am looking forward to asking him on Tuesday, what he thinks of, opening the schedule against Notre Dame on Wednesday night. I'm sure every coach in the ACC just hates this, does not want to be a part of this at all. Uh, Mike Bray was <laughs> riffing with us at, at ACC Operation Basketball, as he often does, about all kinds of stuff, which was good. But he started talking about how 
oh man, <laughs> like come on, man, you, you got me going to Chapel Hill for our first game of the season. Come on, because um, he's like, yeah, I thought it was a great idea for the league and the TV. And then as we got closer to it, you, you start like, Jesus Christ, this, this game is going to kill us early on, and it's going to hang around, and we're going to be, you know, if you lose that game, you're going to be in, uh, you risk being in second place or in last place for a month. And then you'll play that December ACC game. And then it's just kind of a lot that, that those games are really going to have a bearing on where you end up in March. Um, so we'll, we'll see if this is a long-term thing. I think it might just be a one-off for the network. Yeah, I mean, you think about it in terms of like Duke and Kentucky playing last year. I mean, both teams look nothing like they did um, in the first game. Everyone was going wild saying like, oh, Duke could beat NBA teams. And it's just like, chill out, guys. And uh, so, yeah, those games... It's it's tough. I mean, it's fun, and it's great to have big-name teams, but it's tough to take too much away. And then you have North Carolina playing Notre Dame, as you said. This this will count when the end-of-season standings come out, I mean, in uh, March. So it seems a little unfair, and then, you, and then you think they're playing Virginia December 7th? I mean, that's a huge game. And Duke, I mean, I don't know if you want to say lucky or fortunate. I mean, they have the Michigan State and the uh, – and Kansas games that they, they they don't start off too difficult. I think they have Boston College and um, and uh, Virginia Tech, who's re, who's kind of rebuilding now. Those are their early games. So Duke has a young team and they can kind of develop without playing these monsters. Whereas North Carolina, it, that's tough. So uh, heading into the change of the calendar year, I mean they're going to have played. Possibly Gonzaga. I mean, you can almost say likely Gonzaga twice. Virginia, Ohio State, who's uh, number eleven preseason campaign. Notre Dame. How many losses would it be? Would you be okay with um, to not worry? And again, worry with quotes around it. Like, well, wh- what do you expect from North Carolina by the time the calendar changes in terms of record? I'd say the the over under on losses probably for them. Um, it's probably going to be four when they get to that point. I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that understand that they could very well lose this game on Wednesday night. Um, I know some of the guys were saying if they play the way that they played on against Winston-Salem state, they are going to lose. They, they, they were pretty open about that. So, um, I think you could lose that game. You could lose the Virginia game. Um, definitely they're going to be, they're going to be underdogs when they go to Gonzaga on, on December 18th, and uh, it's possible they lose one of the Bahamas games, possible they lose the Ohio State game. And um, I guess that's kind of a different world from a lot of college basketball where you cruise through November and December where you're going to play, uh, you know, you're maybe going to play a, a tournament around uh, Thanksgiving or a tournament right there uh, at the end of December where you're, you might be challenged for two to three games. So, yeah, I mean they're they're going to run into five six challenging opponents in this next two months, which, um, you know, I think depending on how you look at it, uh, fan fans won't love it probably <laughs> if their team is losing more games than they're used to at this time of year. But I think it's going to really pay off for them down the road, given where they need this team to get to over the next couple of months and, and where they are right now. Yeah, and after that's done, um, then at least January, it kind of, I don't want to say relaxes, you never know, but it gets a little easier until the NC State game on the 27th. And looking at their games, like the teams they play once, like NC State, Louisville, and uh, 
Syracuse. Those are all away games uh, towards the end of the season. And then they – who do they play to? They play uh, – let me see here. They play Notre Dame, Virginia, Duke, Wake, and, Wake, and Pitt twice. So uh, they have some tough games versus teams that are playing twice in the single games. Those are away. So – it's going to be interesting, especially as it gets towards the end of the year. You hope North Carolina will have developed at that point, but those are definitely, I mean, geez, look, looking at here, we got, I mean, Florida, uh, at Florida State, Florida State's another one. They just play once, but it's away. So at Florida State, then Duke, Wake, Virginia, Notre Dame, Louisville, NC State, Syracuse, then Wake Forest, but then Duke. I mean, those are all, I'm not, I didn't skip over any games. That's how they end their season. So it's going to be, that's pretty tough. So, uh, do you, do you think um, this is a team that could wear down as the season progresses, or do you think it's a team that will get stronger? Oh, I think they're, they are only going to get better as they go along. I mean, traditionally, that's what we've seen out of Carolina teams when they, they kind of hit their stride right around February, start playing their best basketball. And um, I think that's certainly going to be the case this year where um, they've, they've got so much to learn and find out about themselves over these next couple of months, it, it, it could be challenging at times. And um, they're, they're going to, they've obviously, I think they've got the pieces to be a really good final four team in the end. I don't think they're going to look like that at, at the start, but um, I, that one, one the thing on that, the scheduling. Um, so they've got Notre Dame and Virginia are the, their early ACC games that they play before Christmas. And then they're going to play each of them in mid February. So um, you know, whether coaches like that are uh, not playing them early, which I'm sure they don't. But I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, you play a team in November, you play a team in December, and then you get that team in February. That's going to be a pretty obvious way to evaluate your team and see how far they've come along. And I think it's it's going to be interesting for fans to be able to see just how good in, uh, their team or how bad their team still is at that point in the season um, for, for people that, you know, get a repeat opponent late in the year. Okay, so this is a good introduction, and I don't want to kind of harp too much on the end of the season because there's still so much that could go on before then, and hopefully you'll join me. I mean, I definitely want to talk to you as it gets closer to the Duke Carolina games, but even maybe just again for another kind of quick 20 to 30 minutes around uh, the change of the calendar year to see how things are going. So let's let's, uh, say we do talk then. What do you think you're going to be telling me about this team in terms of players and uh, in terms of strengths, weaknesses that maybe – what do you think could possibly surprise you and what do you think Roy is going to be uh, ranting about around uh, the change of the calendar year? Um, well, I think what we're the, one of the things that we're going to be saying is, holy crap, Cole Anthony is amazing. I don't know if it's going to be like – you know, I'm not sure if anything is ever going to be Zion amazing, but I think – you know, I think Cole Anthony has every opportunity to be a 20, 20 point a game, a 20 point average guy who does some really amazing things, um, makes some great passes, does stuff like that. So I think, obviously, I think he's going to be everything he's been billed to be. Um, I think one of the things we're going to talk about is that um, Justin Pierce has become a dynamic player for them in the way he's able to rebound the three spot and the way that he's able to spread the floor out for them. Um, I think people are going to finally start appreciating Garrison Brooks um, for being um, the glue guy and really holding that team together and doing so much for them. Maybe that stats don't always show. And I think 
Um, Roy Williams is going to be pissed off about rebounding and defense. Um, even because even if they were ranked first in the country in both those, he'd be pissed off about this, especially on the rebounding side. You can never get enough rebounds for Roy. Yeah, and I mean, they're always going to be one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the country. So I guess if there's one thing that's, uh, you can't blame them for pushing, it's something they already do well, and hopefully they can do it better. But uh, hey, defend those threes. So, um, yeah, okay, is there, um, I would say, give me one X factor that you say could make a huge difference in the non-conference season, whether it be player, whether it be team, just one X factor that you think will be something, if you're a North Carolina fan or if you're somebody else who just is kind of keeping a uh, an eye just on kind of basically uh, how they're doing without watching every second, what's something to know this is what's going to cause North Carolina or this is why they're doing well or not? One stat, one player, one skill, anything. Yeah, Leaky Black all the way. I think I've mentioned that like five times now, goodness. Um, but, yeah, people are probably going to get tired of hearing me say that. He's been banged up um, for a while now. He's still been banged up with that ankle injury that he suffered last January. He said that it's been bothering him all summer. Um, said that I think Roy, uh, the late night with Roy said was the first time that he had gone full 100% in their little uh, scrimmage that night. So he's missed some practice with that ankle said he was 98, 99% the other night, and he's looking forward to getting to a hundred percent. And so once he is there, um, he's Carolina's second ball handler behind Cole Anthony. And people kind of forget that he was the top ball handler, or the top ball handler, the top point guard in the state coming up. And then he hit a huge growth spurt that, that made him six, seven. So he's got all the point guard skills in the world. He's not just some, some point forward that's trying to make things work. So he feels confident there. He, he went head-to-head with Dennis Smith back in AAU and all that stuff. So he fits in there, and if he is able to give them some some good rebounding and, and take some things away from guys defensively with his length, I think it's going to be a huge factor. And, and the sooner he's healthy and able to really perform at that level, the sooner this team is, get, is get closer to where they need to be. Well, it should be fun. I mean, the ACC is wide open this year. I think uh... – the majority of those who aren't just going by blue blood names are going to say uh, Louisville has the most returning talent. So I, w- I would say, or at least I would uh, predict they have the best chance, but there's a lot of talent on other teams. Maybe it's not returning, but it's kind of who knows what's going to happen. And that's what makes it fun when you don't know. And it's kind of, you see everything develop without knowing how it's going to go. And that's college basketball for you. It changes year to year. So thanks so much for joining me and giving us a great introduction to North Carolina basketball this year. Cole Anthony is going to be the focus, but there's a lot of other guys who are going to help, uh, really impact the team into uh, going into March. I hope to talk to you again in December to get, to get an update, but everyone should definitely follow Brent along as the season moves on at uh, Heels Maven. And what is your uh, Twitter account now? Uh, I am at Brant Heels Maven, B-R-A-N-T Heels Maven. So I will have tweets on Carolina and all kinds of ACC basketball and gosh, probably more stuff than you ever want, but yeah, plenty of ACC hoops goodness there. All right, well, you do a great job with that. And, uh, yeah, there's no warming up. I mean, they go to, they go play Notre Dame right away. So everyone check out Brant's work. And uh, thanks for giving us some intel kind of from uh, behind the enemy lines. I appreciate it. Anytime, dude. Looking forward to catching up again.